It's good to see you this evening. If you want to make yourself comfortable and open back up to the book of Psalms once again as we continue our journey through the book of Psalms together, Psalm 127 is where we pick up this evening. And Psalm 127 and 128, if you read ahead a little bit, you uh, may notice, uh, focus a lot in regards on the topic of family life, and so uh, we may just kind of hang out in those two psalms and uh, cease there this evening. We'll we'll see how the Lord uh, leads, but let's pray, why don't we, as we ask the Lord to speak to our hearts. Father, we just want to thank you for tonight and a chance to to meet together uh, in this place, Lord, uh, as always, we recognize there's a whole lot of things in this world, Lord, that we could be doing uh, on a weekday evening, or things that we could be sitting at home watching or outside doing in this warm weather, and, and yet, Lord, by your grace and your spirit, you've, you've drawn us to the house of the Lord and we believe that, Lord, there is something valuable and beneficial that you have in store for us tonight. We know there's no better thing we could be doing, Lord, than spending time together with you and in the word of God, worshiping you and being with the people of God. So, Lord, meet us here, would you, in a special way. We know that you're among us. We just ask that you would prepare us, strengthen us physically, Lord, help us to be ready and receptive spiritually. And as always, we ask that it would be your spirit <clears throat> who would just speak to our hearts tonight as we open the word of God, that you would convey things that we each need to hear uh, that would help us to know your truth uh, and what's best for your will and purpose for our lives as people. So bless your word, and we ask this together in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen, amen. amen. All right, Psalm 127, where we pick up, uh, as we mentioned a few studies ago, has us in this section from Psalm 120. Through Psalm 134, these songs of ascent, and as we have mentioned, uh, these uh, section of psalms, a lot of them very short and concise, are basically songs that were utilized uh, as the children of Israel would make their pilgrimage up to Jerusalem from wherever they lived among uh, the territory of Israel, they would go to the capital city, Jerusalem, at least three times a year, uh, as we've said before. There were other feast day celebrations and religious holidays that they would gather together, but three were required, were mandatory, if you were a Jewish male, 20 years old and above. Uh, it was expected and required whether you came alone as a representative of your household and understand in that day, um, typically by the age of 20, you were married and had a household. I know, I know that's very countercultural uh, to how things have kind of migrated in our modern culture, uh, but that was very typical. In fact, some uh, commentators you read say that those in the ancient culture, that when a, a man was 20 years old and had not yet claimed a spouse and began a married life, it was perceived as peculiar. Uh, why that wouldn't happen yet. So uh, by that stage of 20, it was perceived at least you were a responsible, accountable adult male, and God expected you to be there worshiping him and, and attending in Jerusalem. Uh, and many times, not just would the males go, they were required, and I think that's a great picture there, that God requires more of us as males and spiritual leaders in our homes. Uh, but many times the whole family would make the pilgrimage. So the wives and the children would make the pilgrimage together with the husband and the father. And from wherever they were in Israel, they would gather there in Jerusalem. 
uh, to celebrate at least three times mandatorily uh, Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. Those week-long religious holiday celebrations, they would cease from work for the week. They'd go to Jerusalem. They'd spend time worshiping God and reflecting upon what those feast celebrations represented. And so it's very fitting As we come to Psalm 127 and 128, as we said, this section from 120 to 34, 134, are these songs that would be sung. These psalms were put to music, some form of melody and tempo, and they would actually sing them as they would move together. And as they were coming from different areas, you know, they would kind of, you know, come into a path. And then the the pilgrimage group would grow larger and larger. And they would see people they hadn't seen for, you know, months at a time as they were very disconnected. There wasn't, again, Facebook and Instagram and all the social media things. It it was a, a chance to see one another and a chance to fellowship again as many of them lived you know, disconnected throughout the state of Israel and the territory of Palestine. And so as they were coming together, obviously one of the main things you would see is families. You would see groups of families, mothers and fathers and their children coming together. And then as they would continue on the journey, especially if they were coming from a distant area, you know, the kids would be running around and playing and, you know, having a good time together. And so there was this very clear picture of this family unit as they were coming and moving towards Jerusalem to go worship. And so Psalm 127 and 128 are basically a very fitting description. It fits right uh, with what was going on as they were going to Jerusalem. You would see this wonderful thing of family life. So as we've said, since these are shorter, let's just read through the entirety of the Psalm, hear what it says, and then we'll go back and kind of unpack it. Psalm 127, he says, unless the Lord builds the house... They labor in vain who build it. And unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early and to sit up late. So whether you're an early morning person or you're a night owl, the Bible has you covered both ways. If you do both, you got a lot of energy. Vain for you to rise up early and to sit up late to eat the bread of sorrows for So he gives his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth or of one's younger years. Happy is the man who has his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed but shall speak with their enemies in the gate. So Psalm 127 will notice that the main emphasis of this psalm, if you were to kind of summarize the entirety of it, I think is to emphasize this point that without God's direct involvement and without God's blessing, without God's help, nothing can become what it's intended to become doesn't matter how hard we work at it, how much time, energy, effort, what skills we bring into the building program, what unique things we do, how hard we make things try and succeed, that without God's direct involvement and God's blessing and help, nothing can become what God's intended it to be, and nothing will ever be stable without God's involvement. Nothing will ever be sure, nothing will last without God's involvement. In it, and, and that applies, as we see in the psalm, in multiple different ways in regards to, as he mentions there in verse 1, in regards to building something. So 
some of what we do in life is we build things, whether it's building a physical structure, uh, whether it's building a business, or whether it's, as we often talk about, building a life or building a marriage, or building a family, right? Building a home together. We use these analogies, lots of different ways that we can build things. But what the Word of God is telling us here is if we try and build something without God's direct involvement in it, it's going to be absolutely vain. If we don't build it on the right foundation, which is God and the things of God, and what the Word of God gives us parameters for that, if we don't build it with God's blessing upon what we're building, if we don't build it with God's help being a part of the process, then nothing we build will ever become what God intends for it to become. We may build something, but we may be building something that's completely not based upon God. It's something that God's blessing is not upon, and therefore it may struggle and it's going to have difficulty, and that's why he indicates what he does. He also references in here the importance of keeping things safe. We're going to see where he talks in verse 1 as well about keeping something safe, the watchman guarding the city. And the idea there is, of course, preserving something to protect it. And what the psalmist is going to show us is without God's direct involvement, it does not matter how hard we try and protect something, it's vain. If we're going to try and make something last on our own and through our own fleshly efforts, we can stay up all night long and the watchman can be the best security guard you could ever possibly hire to keep that thing going or to keep this thing surviving. And sometimes that's what we do in life. We do everything we can to keep something going, whether it's a business we build or, you know, something we got going on. But if God's not involved, he's going to tell us it's going to be utterly vain no matter what we do. He's going to mention as well working to produce what's needed. We're going to see there as he mentions in verse 2 that we can work really hard and labor and exhaust ourselves. But no matter what we put our hand to do in our work or our labors or to accomplish some task or succeed in some effort, if God's not involved, uh, it's not going to become ultimately what it could become. And then, of course, the main thing he'll emphasize verses 3 to 5 is in regards to uh, building a good, solid family life in the sense of producing godly children uh, and raising godly children. And, and I emphasize the word godly because people can raise children. There's a big difference between raising children and raising good children, right? Or raising even more, raising godly children. And that's what the, the, the prophet says in Malachi. He says that God is seeking godly offspring. Even as one of the reasons God says that he hates divorce because he's seeking a godly seed. He wants godly offspring. And he wants that beauty to be produced in us raising our children in the best way. So look at me, verse 1, as he begins with this concept, again, that without God's direct involvement, nothing will become what it's intended to become in God's heart or what it could become he says, verse 1, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. And to, to labor in vain means to work in a way whereby you can put all types of right effort, the sweat of your brow, and you can do all kinds of things. You can use the most creative methods, and you can put the greatest investment possible and lots of energy and time, and you can really work hard to build something, but no amount of planning or no skilled effort or no matter how great the resources you throw at trying to build something, 
whether it's a physical structure or it's the building of a person's life or the building of a family, no matter what kind of planning or skills or schemes you use, are capable to build something unless the Lord is involved in the building process. Unless the Lord is the one who is the foundation of those things and helping us to build it and really putting his hand upon the blessing of what's being built, you know, in the same way that we, uh, you know, in a civil sense or with construction, you know, we obtain permits and we have, you know, certain codes we have to go by and then they got to come out and they have to inspect it afterwards and put a stamp on something and give a, a CO, you know, the idea is that that's approved. The building and the standards have been done properly and we approve it. Well, well, God's the greatest building inspector and God has certain standards and codes. It's called his word. And God wants things built in a certain way, whatever it is we're building. Again, whether it's our life, whether it's building a business, whether it's building a, a marriage or, or building a family life or, or building a ministry or building the Lord's church, right? Jesus even used that analogy of the church being like a building, that we're like living stones being fit together. Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. And Jesus, remember, he said, uh, he said upon this rock, that is the confession that Jesus Christ is the Savior, the promised Messiah from the Old Testament. Jesus said, upon that rock that Jesus is the Son of God and the Savior, he said, upon that rock, I will build my church. Uh, and Paul speaks about how we as Christians are like the living stones being put together. We're a spiritual temple now uh, that God's presence might dwell among us and that we co-labor, if you would, together with with God, as, as that we're fellow workmen. God lets us share in the building process, whether building a ministry or, or again, building the church, building the, the body of Christ. And whatever one of those things you want to fit into verse one there, he says, but the bottom line is unless the Lord's building that house, it's just vain labor, no matter how else you try and build it. Again, if it is not built upon what God wants it to be built upon, and it's built upon the wrong foundation, it's not going to last. It's not going to work. Remember Jesus said at the end of Matthew chapter 7, those who hear my sayings and do them, I'll liken him to like a wise man who built upon the solid rock foundation and the wind and the waves and the storm beat against that house, but it didn't fall because it was built on a good solid rock foundation. It was built on the right foundation. And Jesus said, but the foolish man who's like one who builds on the sand, is the one who hears these sayings of mine. In other words, they heard all the same sermons. They read all the same Bible verses. They might even have said amen during the sermon. But he says they hear these sayings of mine, but they don't do them. One distinction, they don't put them into practice. And Jesus said that's like the person who's building on foolish, sandy foundation. And when the storm comes, it doesn't last. It's all vain. It all falls apart. You know, I think a lot of times I surprise couples when I do premarital counseling because that passage that I'm referencing, that's actually the first passage I take them to before I talk about any of the marital verses in the Bible. And, and I basically want them to see that distinction, the simple distinction, foolish, sandy foundation where the house falls apart when the storm comes, solid rock, stable foundation when the storm and wind and waves come, it lasts and it endures one distinction. They both heard all the same information. They heard all the same truths. One put it into practice. The other said yes and amen, but they didn't live it out. 
they didn't put it into practice. And I always bring them there first because I say, look, I'm assuming you want to build a good, solid foundation and you want to build a life together. And I said, we can spend multiple sessions going through all types of passages in the word of God, which we will. And I can share everything that I could possibly share by the Lord's grace and wisdom of the almost 28 years of of my own marriage and the, the fruitfulness of that. But what I can't do, I can't go home and help you put these things into practice in your own marriage life. You have to choose to put these things into practice. And to the degree that you do that, you'll build a solid foundation for a solid family and a solid marriage because the storms come against everybody's family, right? We're, 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 none of us are immune to struggles and job loss and you know sickness coming into our families or going through bumpy and tough roads and times in our relationship as you put two people together who are completely different by design that are supposed to have irreconcilable differences. That's, that's God's design. Well, we just have irreconcilable differences, right? You are male. She's female. That's irreconcilable till death do you part let alone all the other right distinctions that we have just as, you know, personalities and our experiences and the way our strengths and weaknesses or whatever. But again, so, so critical to realize the foundation that we build, building things on God's foundation upon his word and doing it God's way, whether it's marriage, whether it's ministry and building the Lord's work and, and, and building a good, solid foundation, building the church God's way rather than according to carnal and fleshly methods of, well, what's the world doing? What's the latest you know, business marketing tools and techniques? And what's, what's the, the latest thing we need now? You know, do we need this, that, and the flash? And what, what do people like now? Make it more like a concert and got to keep people interested. Like, and we get caught up in all these things that are outside of just the simple design of what God has given to build solid and to build in a way that that's God's foundation and that God's endorsement is upon those building codes. You know what I'm saying? Where God, okay, now that I'm into, that, that I'm building with there. And, and I'm building that, and it's not just a, a quick throw up of something you know, that, that is very shallow and that can be three miles wide and it's three inches deep. And then when life and reality settles in, Everything crumbles and everybody wonders why. And it's because something can be three miles wide as a ministry and three miles high. And then it's three inches deep with spiritual maturity and character and spiritual health. And then things get really messy and it's all for vain. And so here the psalmist reminds, we want God's involvement. Whatever I'm building, building your life, building your home, building a ministry, building a business, he says, Unless the Lord's building it, it's vain. We want to build with God, be fellow workers with him, Lord. I want you to be the one in the building process. And if you are the one building this and I'm just helping you out in the process and you're in this, then he says that's going to be something that's going to be stable. If the Lord's not building it, he says we're just laboring in vain, even though we may be building he says the second part of verse one, and unless the Lord guards the city, now he's talking about preserving something, protecting it right from enemy invaders. The watchman stays awake in vain. So this was a very typical way that cities would be protected. They were walled cities. The watchman would be up on a higher tower. He would be why others were sleeping and resting and just going about their affairs. A, a specified person 
their job, their role was to be a watchman and to keep their eye on the horizon, to see if it looked like anything was coming to threaten the city or the people so that they didn't constantly have to be looking for things to threaten their welfare. But again, this same reality is true as the first part of verse one with building. Here he's talking about keeping something safe, preserving something, uh, trying to do what we can to protect something so that it keeps going and so that it can stay stable. And he says here, doing all we can to preserve something, again, whether it's our own personal life and what we've built into our life and our walk and relationship with the Lord, whether it's trying to keep stable our marriage and protect and preserve our marriage that we've built, whether it's our family, whether it's a ministry, again, whatever it is, that we can put lots of time and energy into doing all we can to keep something going. And like the watchman on the wall who stays awake and he is he's alert 24-7 and he is going to do everything he can to make sure nothing gets disrupted or, or make sure that everything remains the same and keeps going in the city. Yet he says that's utterly vain and hopeless if the Lord is not the one keeping it. If the Lord is not the one who's involved keeping things stable and keeping things going, we can try really hard to keep something going but if God's not in it, he says, it's, it's going to end up being vain. It's going to be a vain, exhausting effort. Again, the picture here is that our efforts to build or our efforts to preserve and keep something going are utterly worthless as humans unless the Lord's involved. We have to be depending upon the Lord. Lord, we're depending upon you to build this. We can't build this, Lord. But, but if you, if you want to build it and you want to build it your way, Lord, we'll participate. But, Lord, you have to build it has to be you, Lord, has to be a work of your spirit, has to be you involved. And Lord, we can't keep something going on life support, straining and doing everything we can to try and protect and preserve something. Lord, unless you keep it alive, it's destined to just fail. And we can try and keep something in our human efforts on life support forever. And sometimes we do that. And we try and try and try and try and then typically get more fleshly and we more sweat of the brow and more carnality and more selfishness and manipulation because we're doing everything we can like a hardworking watchman to do whatever we can. We, we will, we're not going to let this die. Not going to let this die. When the reality is sometimes if the Lord doesn't want to keep something alive, it's just vain trying to keep it alive. Unless the Lord keeps something alive, it's not going to stay alive. And what we need to do is step back and say, Lord, we're completely dependent upon you to keep this alive. Lord, we're depending upon you to protect our marriage and keep it alive. Lord, we're dependent upon you and, and, and trusting you to protect us from the evil one, from the devil's attacks, uh, you know, bringing in disruption and harming us. And we have to trust him for our protection. And so he says, this is important that God would be involved keeping things stable and guarding us like that watchman, he says. In verse two, he then goes on to say, and it's vain also for you and I to rise up early and to sit up late. Now, again, the Bible is not endorsing laziness here. Oh, well, great. I'm, I'm glad it says that. So that means I don't have to get up early. I, you know, that, the book of Proverbs clearly teaches diligence, right? teaches that we should be diligent, that we shouldn't be slothful. The Bible even says that the person who's lazy or slothful in spirit is a brother to someone who's a destroyer. That's how God compares laziness. God says laziness is basically someone who just destroys things. 
So the Bible is not endorsing that we don't work hard and put in hours and, you know, be diligent in our efforts. But what God is saying to us here in verse 2 is it ends up being vain, worthless, empty for you and I to get up super early and to stay up burning the candle at both ends all the way till late at night because we are so stressed because it all depends upon me and my efforts and my diligence and and, and I got to make it happen. And all of a sudden we can exhaust ourselves believing it depends on us so much and it's all about our efforts and our achievements and our staying on top of everything and our working everything out and my investments. And it's so much responsibility on me that we have to make it happen, that we, we get up super early and we stay up all late at night. And he says there in verse two, and we end up doing what? Just eating the bread of sorrows. What we end up doing is feeding upon stress. And all that feeds to us is chronic stress and worry and sorrowing over, oh my goodness, I, I've, I've been up so long, I'm so exhausted. And, and all of a sudden we're just, we're torturing ourselves with just stress and being overwhelmed or anxiety, just destroying us physically and mentally and emotionally. We are just a sorrowful, overwhelmed mess, exhausted in every way, physically, mentally, and emotionally, because we are thinking we've got to produce it. We've got to accomplish the task. It's all on our shoulders to succeed. And here the Bible says in verse two, yet God gives his beloved sleep. The idea there is rest. God wants us, as we often say, right, do our best and then commit the rest. We often say, you know, and and when you read Psalm 37, I encourage you that the Bible does tell us that to a degree. It says, commit your works to the Lord and he shall bring it to pass. Doesn't mean we don't work, but you commit your works to the Lord. You do what you need to do. You're responsible. We put in effort. We put in energy. We put in the time. But at a certain point, we say, Lord, I, I gave my best at it. And so, Lord, now I'm just going to leave that with you. I'm just going to commit the rest of you, and I'm going to trust you to bring that to pass. And I'm just going to lay my head down the rest because, Lord, you say that you give your beloved not anxiety, not stress, not depression, you know, n- not insomnia. You give your beloved children rest because he's a father, right? And ultimately, like any father, you know, he just wants his children to feel the sense of, listen, daddy will fix that for you, honey. You know, and it was my privilege many times to be able to just, just give that to me. Just, I'm going to take care of that. What? Somebody said something mean to you? I'll write that text back for you. There you go. It was your sister? Oh, actually, well, that's a group text now, honey. We're just, you know. But, you know, it's a privilege of a father to just, I don't want you to stay up all night stressed and worried. Just, you just rest. And the Bible tells us, Psalm 37, again, to just rest in the Lord. You read Psalm 37. Trust, delight, commit, rest. And that's what God wants us to do. Do our best. Just commit it to God. Rest in his love. Trust his faithfulness. He gives his beloved rest. You know, so if you find yourself just exhausted and overwhelmed and falling into that, you know, remind yourself, Lord, okay, I, I am just working myself into a sorrowful, pitiful mess. But Lord, you say you give me sleep. And, and Lord, so please, just would you just put me to sleep? You know, I, I love the book of Genesis because it literally says that God put Adam into a deep sleep, took out his rib and fashioned Eve. 
And I think God honestly should do that to every single person, my personal conviction. That's what God should do with single people, particularly single men. He should just put them into a deep sleep right until they're about to meet Eve. Just protects them, keeps everybody safe, put them in a deep sleep, create Eve, and bring her right into his path so there's not a whole lot of time to get into trouble. But God put Adam into some type of a sleep without, you know, uh, you know, things that were done to, you know, typical medicines. God supernaturally put him to sleep. And you know what? Supernaturally, Lord, can you just knock me out? Just put me to sleep, Lord. I don't necessarily want to take that chemical to go to sleep. Can you just give your beloved some rest, Lord? Whatever it takes, just put me to sleep. You know, it's interesting. Some commentators say the Hebrew conveys the idea there in verse 2 that, that it says in the Hebrew, and I'm not so certain, but you can do what you want with it. Some commentators imply that the Hebrew says, for he gives to his beloved while they sleep. The idea there would be that while we're sleeping and we're no longer stressing and working to achieve it to the late hours of the night, that while we're sleeping, God fixes the problem for us. And he gives us what we need or he fixes the problem while we're resting. And he says, you go to sleep, I'll fix the problem. When you get up in the morning, it'll be taken care of. Uh, to a degree, I think there's a, a wonderful truth in that. Now, as he comes to verse 3 here, notice he now begins to really hone in on this idea of the importance of God's involvement in the parental life and, and the blessing of children here as he speaks to us about God's view of children in verses 3 to 5. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward like arrows in the hand of a warrior. So are children of one's youth. And happy is the man, he says, whose quiver excuse me, is full of them, they shall not be ashamed, but shall speak with their enemies in the gate. Now, let, let me just say as a synopsis to those three uh, verses there, please notice, if you would, the Holy Spirit giving very clearly God's view on children. And God's view on children is incredibly countercultural to the world's view on children. Sadly, the world's view on children, and it's just progressing more and more and more away from even what it was just even culturally in the ancient culture of Israel, where they considered it an honor to have children. They grieved if they couldn't have children. They felt something was wrong between them and God even if they struggled with a barren womb and fertility because they so highly esteemed children. And we live in a generation today, sadly, where the view of children is not that children are a heritage from the Lord, they're a hassle. Or children aren't a blessing, they're a burden, or they're a bother, or they're a hindrance. And this is more of the mindset of our present culture. Sadly, that's a common attitude and view of the world, which, let me just be very candid, is directed by nothing other than just the selfishness of our human spirit. And the birth rate is drastically declining. It has been for a long time, predominantly because of, and not just in our country and others as well, but predominantly because, and they've even done studies on this, because people have grown more materialistic and more self-serving, and because they want more for themselves and a higher standard of living, children become a lot lower of a priority and the perspective towards them is they will hold me back from that career path or that career goal or this particular lifestyle or way of living or that particular house and and kids are expensive duh of course they're expensive 
My favorite is, well, well I just, we're just waiting until we have enough money. And everybody who has a kid's going, you've been waiting a long time, but <laughs> you never have enough money. You just start having them, and then you wonder where the money comes from. You know, money just starts talking to you in a way like it never has before. It just says, goodbye, goodbye. It barely even says hello anymore. It just comes in, goodbye, goodbye, because there's constantly reasons, right? But there's just this unfortunate thing where this very you know, self-serving, materialistic mindset that has creeped in to the society out in the world where kids are just perceived as an inconvenience, they're perceived as a hindrance, and look, whether that's people postponing having children or not wanting to have children at all, or, or maybe, sadly, even, of course, the worst of that, choosing to terminate a pregnancy when they've conceived, these all become the byproducts of that very thing of, well, well that is just going to interfere with my goals. That's going to hinder or cramp my desire to be able to achieve this or for us to get there. And if we didn't have kids, we could just up and go and we could travel there and we could have this kind of house or live in that kind of neighborhood. And, and that sadly stands in the way of the mindset that God would want us to have towards children here. And you see God's view of children here is completely different. God's view of children, as he says, look at it in verse three, he says, children are a heritage from the Lord. And the fruit of the womb is a reward. That word heritage means an, an inherited gift from the Lord. The idea is that when someone receives conception, when a, a, a husband and a wife are able to conceive a child, God says, look, that's not a hindrance to what your future was, or that's not an inconvenience or something that's going to hold you back in some way from all the plans or ideals or standards that you were you know, interested in arriving at. He says, no, th th you've just inherited a gift, a gift from God, a, a gift from the Lord. He says, and not only a gift from the Lord, he literally uses the term verse three there, the fruit of the womb is a reward from the Lord. It's a blessing. It's one of the ways that God brings his blessings into our lives. And there are many ways God can bring his blessings into our lives. And it doesn't mean if a couple you know, struggles with conceiving a child that God doesn't want to reward them or God isn't wanting to bless them. That's not what the text says. You can't read that into the text. What the text is saying is that when you are blessed with conception, that's a gift from the Lord. That's a reward. It's one of the ways that God bestows blessings upon our lives is God reveals here that kids are a gift from him and a blessing. And it's so important that we view children in that way. As, as a mother and a father, that we would view children that way as, as married couples, and that we would just view children that way, period. Whether it's the children that we have access to minister to, whether children or, again, our grandchildren or kids in the children's ministry, that we realize these are a, these are a gift from you, God. You've given these children to us as a blessing from you. And notice the important thing to recognize there in verse 3 regarding children is very clearly God says they're not just a blessing and a gift from him, but very clearly he's also telling us here that they're a stewardship. Because you see what he says there? He says, these children are a heritage from the Lord. They're given from the Lord. The idea is they're technically not our children. They're God's children, right? The Bible says that the Lord is the one who opens the womb and grants conception. 
So any child is a gift from the Lord that also means that they have been deposited to us as a stewardship and God has entrusted us with that child's life. And God has said, look, I, I knit this child together in the womb and I knew that you would be the absolute best set of parents to take care of this child. And so I'm entrusting this child to you as a stewardship. And God holds us accountable for that stewardship. You know, the effort we put into that, how we handle that responsibility. But he wants us, again, and that's the basis right there. We have to begin with that basis of recognizing that our children are a stewardship. And when we see our children that way, that they're a blessing, they're a gift, and that they're a stewardship, boy, that takes parenting ministry to a whole other level, to a whole other level. I remember years ago when we were back at, you know, pastoring Calvary Chapel of York, and I was in the girls' uh, Christian school one time, and and I went in, and and I forget how the conversation arose, but one of the staff members said there, said, you know, hey, I just want to let you know, like, I mean, you're, you could just really tell that you and your wife have done a very good job with your kids. And, and, And I looked at her, and I got a little choked up, and I said, you know what? I said, I can be, and I just may be an absolute failure at everything else that I do in my life. But I said, the most important ministry to me is my wife and my children, and that is the highest compliment you could ever pay me. Because my kids are an entrusted stewardship, and they are something that I'm going to answer to God for, that I'm going to give account to God for. And any parent must need to recognize that, because that makes the parenting process way different too when they said, well, well, you didn't listen. You're on loan. You're a stewardship. You may not like what I'm doing, but at the end of the day, I got to answer to God for you, not you. Once you leave and you're out from under my stewardship, then you answer for yourself. But for this phase, I'm responsible. And this is a stewardship, and I've been entrusted with this, and it makes the parenting process completely different. Notice as well, he mentions here in in verse 4 that children are like arrows in the hand of a warrior so are children of one's youth. The idea is of one's youth. The idea is in one's younger years. Again, it was very cultural to be married much younger than we see in society in today's day and age. Uh, marriage happened much younger and childbearing began much sooner. And he says here that children are likened to, and I like the analogy, are likened to arrows. Children like arrows in the hand of a warrior. Now, Again, children being arrows in the hand of the warrior, that implies that that's God's picture of what children are like. Arrows, he's going to say, in the quiver in the hand of a warrior. Now, the first thing that is essential, if our kids are like arrows in our quiver and we're warriors, that warrior, first and foremost, has to be a disciplined individual if they're going to ultimately use those arrows properly. So the discipline begins with a parent. To say, you know what, you're a stewardship, you're like an arrow, and arrows are meant to be launched one day, so I need to have discipline to make sure that I do everything to prepare you to fly straight and hit the target. And I have to be disciplined as the warrior, as the parent, you have to have a degree of discipline to be committed to raising your kids, recognizing they're like arrows that are meant to be launched one day. And so it begins there. But but what is it like for kids to be like a warrior? Well, Again, a, a, a arrow to a warrior was an instrument, first of all, to protect and to defend that warrior, right? That was a, was a weapon. It was a form of a weapon. 
So that arrow provided protection and it kept you safe. And, and in that way, kids, I think, are like arrows because kids, especially in our younger years, they do protect us. Do you know what from? Claude, you can say it out loud. Thank you. Somebody caught the picture. Selfishness, right? What you, mean, you can't be selfish and have a kid. It's just the two don't go together. You'll not make it. And those kids, like an arrow in the hand of a warrior, that arrow protects that warrior. One of the greatest assets to having children, especially in your younger years, that it protects you from, like an arrow, it protects you and I from becoming incredibly selfish. Because you can't be selfish, right? They drive selfishness out of you constantly. It's part of raising kids, right? But it's a good thing because it helps us to mature in our character and to develop in that way. So in that sense, they protect us. You know, they contribute uh, to that process of driving selfishness out of us. Arrows also have to be cared for properly. And kids like arrows have to be cared for properly. If you don't care for arrows and you neglect them, they're going to get you know, you know, into a bad condition and they're not going to fulfill their purpose in the same way. You know, kids have to be cared for. They can't be neglected. You have to be intentional. You have to be purposeful. You have to be committed to the process. It's not just, look, just don't get arrested, uh, don't get a girl pregnant, and don't tell anyone your last name. Other than that, I'll see you when you graduate. I mean, that's not going to work. You have to be fully engaged and care about those kids and compare, care about the stewardship and the responsibility. And, and kids must be cared for just like the arrows must be cared for. And just like arrows, also, arrows had to be fashioned and shaped. And you couldn't just take a stick from over here with bends and twists in it or whatever and just put a little metal tip on the end of it. No, you had to fashion that arrow. You had to make it straight and you had to work with it and and groom it and do things to fashion it and to mold it so that it was straight and prepared to accomplish its intended function to the greatest degree and same thing with kids kids like ours have to be fashioned again good kids don't just happen automatically it just doesn't happen that way they have to be fashioned and shaped, and there needs to be a commitment and an intentional effort made into that. There must be that, you know, intentional good parenting is not for lazy people, right? We all know that. Again, you can raise kids, but to raise good kids, it's a lot of work, isn't it? Can somebody at least say amen to that? <laughs> it's a lot of work, but it's a beautiful work. It's a wonderful and a valuable work, but again, we want to fashion our children to make them good, solid kids by preparing them and training them and arrows also another thing about arrows they need to be aimed right you got to aim an arrow in the same way with kids you got to aim your kids at something you got to have an aim for your children too many children grow up and they have no aim for their lives they're completely aimless because there was never enough investment on a parent's part to help them aim at something to show them look if you don't aim at something you're going to keep hitting nothing the rest of your life and there are lots of different things that can be aimed at. And it's not just being successful in a career and being a responsible adult. There are much higher things to aim at. Knowing the Lord, you know, walking with Jesus, and, 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 and aim high. If you're going to aim with your kids, aim high. Because when you aim high, the arrow goes further. If you aim low, pff, just, it's, that's going to happen more frequently. Aim really high. 
But give your kids an aim. Aim on them and let them see what you're, you're after. Because as I said earlier, the intended purpose of an arrow ultimately is not to stay in the quiver forever, but it's to be what? It's to be launched. That's the whole goal. We're preparing them, fashioning them, aiming them, doing everything we can because we realize one day you are going to be launched. That's my job to release you one day. I don't want you in my quiver forever. I love you, but I want your mom back someday soon. And I'm getting around to that again. I cry like a baby at the wedding, but I realize that's the whole goal. Because there starts to come in, you know, and the interesting thing is, when is there the most tension on the bow? Right before the arrow is what? Released. And boy, is it not true that right before, you know, I have two that are married and one six months away, our last one from getting ready to get married. Right before you're getting ready to release that arrow, that's when there's the most tension because something's about to happen, right? They're becoming more independent and there's the indication it's time for them to launch. But hopefully if we fashion them straight and we've given them an aim and we've fixed on a target, they're going to launch and they're going to fly straight and they're going to hit the target, right? That's what we want. That's what our ultimate goal is with them. And to let them understand that's the process as we're raising them again, because arrows also are like an extension of a warrior, and our kids become an extension of us. And the blessing is we raise them right, and then we launch them and release them, and, and we can accomplish things. Even through our children's life that maybe we couldn't accomplish by raising them right and preparing them, we send them out, and they impact the world and do things, and they're an extension of you and I. And they can be a great blessing in that way, and we can step back with pride and watch what they're doing in a beautiful way. And that's why he concludes in verse 5 of the psalm by saying, And happy is the man who has his quiver full of them. Again, it's full of children. Well, what's that mean? You know, how, happy is the man who's – how do you know when your quiver is full? Well, one commentator just said when you start to fully quiver. So that your number may be different depending upon the size of your arrows, how much ruckus they cause in your quiver. Uh, you may, Yeah, I'm, I'm starting to fully quiver. I'm full here. Uh, you can take that and interpret that to your birth control ideas accordingly. But the idea there, happy is the man. Again, kids bring great blessing into our lives, right? I mean, the joy of raising children. There is no joy that can replace that. There's nothing that can bring more genuine happiness into our lives and raising our kids and enjoying them. And he says, they shall not be ashamed, but shall speak with their enemies in the gate. And again, the idea is there are kids going down to the gate. Remember, the gate of the city was the place of honor where business was done and where warfare was determined and so on and so forth. So the idea there is our children going out and they're speaking not just in the gate, handling honorable responsibilities, but look what he says. They're speaking with enemies. The idea is they become effective. They become blessings. And that's the goal of parents that we want to launch kids out into the world that are a blessing on society. We want to release blessings into the society and not burdens into society. And parents determine that according to that stewardship and that use in that way. Psalm 128, let's quickly look through this. It's a, a short psalm. He says, blessed is everyone who fears the Lord. Again, the idea there is to deeply reverence. You have a strong respect for God, you reverence God because you know to live outside of God's design is not good. So he says, blessed is going to be the life of every man who fears the Lord and who, notice, walks in his ways. 
So the one who walks in God's ways, the one who respects God and is afraid of what will happen to their life if they live outside of honoring God and living outside of God's ways, he says that person's going to experience a blessed life. I want a blessed life, don't you? I'd much rather have a blessed life than a cursed life. If I'm going to pick, I don't want to bring curses upon my life. I want to bring blessings into my life. And he says, well, well, there's a blessing to everyone who fears the Lord and who walks in his ways. And then he begins to speak of some of those blessings here in the psalm briefly. He says, verse 2, when you eat the labor of your hands, you shall be happy and it shall be well with you. So one of the blessings of fearing the Lord and walking in his ways, notice, is being able to find fulfillment in just being a productive hardworking, self-sustaining individual. He says right there, when you are able to eat the labor, your own work and labor, you eat to supply your own need, eat the labor of your own hands, he says, you'll find happiness and it's going to be well with you. And again, The person who fears the Lord and walks in his ways says, you know what? I don't want to just be a consumer. My parents launched me different than that. I want to be a contributor. And I want to be someone who's constructive and productive. And so whatever I got to do to labor with my own hands, to put a meal on the table in front of me. And he says, you know, there's something that's a blessing about just eating what your own hands have provided and that you've worked for in a way where you're just happy and you know, it's well with me. I'm happy. This is nice. I worked hard all day and I bought this food and I'm going to eat this food because I worked hard for this food. And you know, isn't it true if we just really step back from all the marketing of the world that the, the most enjoyable things of life truly are just the ordinary things of everyday life? good family, enjoying our relationship that we have with our spouse, with our kids, and the blessing and the privilege to be a parent and just having the opportunity to to work, to do something constructive, to have a degree of self, hey, I I worked, I labored, I I earned some income, I eked a little bit, and and I got a food on my table now, and man, this this is pretty good. Yeah, just this, this meal tastes great. I earned this meal. I work for this. And then, you know, get just the simple, ordinary things of life. It's amazing how those could be some of the greatest blessings and enjoyments that we have in our lives, you know, rather than looking for other ways to eat the labor of someone else's hands. Eat the labor of your own hands and and you'll find happiness in that. And it'll be well with you. It'll be a good life. He says, verse three, back to the family again, your wife shall be like a fruitful vine in the heart of your house, your children like olive plants around you your table. And then he says, but once again, verse four, behold, thus shall the man be blessed in this way who fears the Lord. So again, what's part of a blessed life look like? He mentioned as well, verse three, a beautiful, healthy relationship with your spouse, with your wife, her becoming like a vine and and the, the very heart of your house and your children sitting around your little table where you're eating your meal there, where you brought home the food from what you labored for. They're sitting around your table like little olive plants. And I love the description he gives here of of a blessed man's life, that his wife will be like a fruitful vine. Notice, a fruitful vine. The vine was either the grapevine 
which produced you know, you know, wine and grapes and so forth and, and food and drink or, or whether the olive vine that produced oil for cooking or, uh, you know, uh, oil that was used in other ways to anoint things or to uh, salve medicinally and so forth. And he says the wife of a blessed man becomes like a fruitful vine, not a dried up vine, not a shriveled vine. Because when a man is fearing the Lord and walking in the ways of the Lord, he's going to end up having a wife that becomes like this pleasant, fruitful vine. And I love how he uses the language there, verse 3, in the very heart of your house. The wife becomes like a fruitful vine, a fruitful, productive vine, sending forth blessing into the home, and she becomes that in the very heart of your house. You know, I am a firm believer that though I clearly know and operate in such a way according to God's word, that my responsibility is to be the head of my marriage and of my home, I don't doubt the slightest bit that I know that my wife is the heart of our home. And she brings the heart and the love and the caring and and all the things that go together with making a house a home. And and she brings the heart to our home by who she is and by the heart she has for our home, for our marriage, for our children, for creating a beautiful, wonderful, fruitful home life. And what a wonderful blessing it is to have a wife who's just like the, the very heart of your home, like a fruitful vine just filling the home with the the very heart there in the house in this beautiful way. And he says, and your children sitting around like olive plants, again, like productive olive plants all around your table. And again, this is the man who's blessed, he says. This is the man who's blessed. You know, that's a tremendous truth because the reality is this. Listen, I don't need, you don't need a million dollars to be happy. I, I, I have a wife, I raised three children, two are married, one's getting married in six months. I've been a very wealthy man. I've been a very, very wealthy man. And, and, and wealth is measured in much different ways than the way the world wants to convey what wealth is. To be able to experience a good, happy, healthy marriage where you got a fruitful relationship with your spouse and you know, your little olive shoots sitting around the table and now my olive shoots are making olive shoots. <laughs> and now they're being productive. Like That's what olive branches do. They, they produce more. And that's a blessing. You know, that, that's a blessing. You know, wh- one man said one time, listen... I am wealthier than someone who has $7 million. And the person said, wait, that's crazy. Like, dude, you have seven kids. You have seven kids? And you're telling me you're wealthier than some guy that's got $7 million? And he said, yeah, because the guy who has $7 million wants eight. I'm blessed. (laughs) I'm blessed. I I got seven kids. I got a fruitful life. And again, just this reality that there's wealth measured by things that are much more important than material things or nicer things or living at higher standards. And any person who has navigated that, you know, you know that, right? The blessing, the happiness, the enjoyment, the fulfillment that comes just 
from these simple, ordinary things of a healthy domestic life. Again, these are God's greatest blessings, something to do. He says, verse 5, the Lord bless you out of Zion. May you see the good of Jerusalem all the days of your life. And what was in Zion and Jerusalem? The temple. That's where the presence of God was. So may the presence of God, and as you go to the house of God, may the goodness of God flow into your life, flow into your family, flow into your children all the days of your life. And then verse 6, how beautiful, because I can claim this verse now, verse 6. Yes, may you see your children's children, grandpa, coming soon. May you see your children's children, peace be upon Israel. Again, and God sees that as a blessing, a blessing. That, that you see the value of family. So therefore, back to Psalm 127, that like arrows in the hand of a warrior in one's youth. Hey, I may be young, but that's okay. I want to get married young and I'm going to start having me some babies young because if I do that, I won't be too old to see my children's children. <laughs> and each generation can enjoy itself because there's not these monster gaps where, well, I just, you understand, I couldn't have kids yet. I mean, I needed, we needed the three SUVs. And, the, you know, the, the, the six-bedroom house. And, and God's going, man, you're getting all that stuff, but you're, you're missing the more things that are important about wealth and happiness and enjoyment.